God has decreed and is doing a new thing in this last hour. God has decreed the restoration of the apostolic anointing and function within the church that Jesus is building. The apostolic office or function is being restored. He who proposes to stop the working of the Lord Almighty engages in vanity and chasing after the wind. The word of the Lord is law. The thing that he decrees cannot return unto him void without accomplishing the purpose for which it is sent. Welcome to the Real Truth Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Lambert. In an hour when deception and apostasy is rampant on earth, the need for proclaiming the real truth has never been more desperate. Jesus prophesied, an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Proclaiming the real truth of the written and rhema prophetic word of God that he is revealing in this hour concerning the church Jesus is building is our goal. Affecting real change in the hearts and minds of believers in Christ in order to fulfill the purposes and plans of God is our purpose. This is the first in a series of articles I'll be publishing concerning a matter of utmost importance to the future of the church Jesus is building in these end times in which we are living here in the 21st century. The matter of the restoration of the apostolic and prophetic offices. It's a matter of utmost importance to the future of the church Jesus is building because of the nature of the ministry offices as delineated and elucidated in Scripture, and they are indeed, despite all the adamant and oftentimes angry claims to the contrary. And that confidence in the validity of that assertion is based on the stated fact that the offices or functions indeed are unequivocally and irrefutably specifically referenced in the Word of God, which is the church's foundation for all spiritual truth for all time during the church age. It's natural and normal, I suppose, to go against the old adage that cautions don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. We like things to be either all good or all evil. That's certainly easier, albeit maybe the intellectually lazy way to deal with things so we don't have to spend time thinking about it. We don't like it when things are a mixed blessing. That makes it harder to determine if something is good or if it is evil. If it's intrinsically good, then we want all its fruit or what it produces to be wholly and purely good. And if because it does not coincide with our own current understanding or knowledge, we conclude it's evil, we want to identify it as being purely and solely evil. 
And all of that certainly is totally understandable when it comes to spiritual matters, including to believers and those who function in any sort of leadership capacity in the church and therefore are required to make such assessments. After all, those of us who use the Word of God as the touchstone in assessing things are very familiar with a number of Scripture passages that essentially indicate that very thing, such as Jesus' statement, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit, Matthew twelve thirty-three. Indeed, it's easy to make a snap judgment about a quote-unquote new spiritual matter that has emerged that is incongruous with our current knowledge base and challenges our long-held understanding based on that verse and cite that verse as the basis for our rejection of the matter and its validity. However, the unfortunate thing is that that particular verse is often taken out of context, and the import of what Jesus was saying in it is commonly misconstrued. The context or backdrop of that verse is Jesus' dissertation to the Pharisees juxtaposing Satan and his kingdom against God and his kingdom following an incident in which he healed or cured the word in the Greek is therapeo, a man who was brought to him who was blind and mute as a result of being demon-possessed by casting out the demons that were causing his blindness and muteness. Matthew described that incident this way. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him so that the mute man spoke and saw. All the crowds were amazed and were saying, This man cannot be the son of David, can he? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, This man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. And knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How, then, will his kingdom stand? If I, by Beelzebul, cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man? And then he will plunder his house. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. 
you brood of vipers. How can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good. And the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an account for in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, says the Lord in Scripture. Ephesians 4 Bible College offers 300 cutting-edge, customized, online degree and certificate programs to help you meet that biblical exhortation. Competitive, affordable, pay-as-you-go tuition rates. Learn more at Ephesians4.net. Thorough analysis of this passage and Jesus' stern and rebuking dissertation to the Pharisees makes it clear that, as indicated already, Jesus was actually juxtaposing the kingdom of Satan with the kingdom of God and speaking what is inherently evil and from Satan's domain vis-a-vis what is good and intrinsically from God's kingdom, good versus evil and that the supply source for what humans speak is either from a heart of God, that is, God's kingdom and spirit, or it is Satan's kingdom and spirit. Moreover, the trees he juxtaposed in this context were the two trees that were in the Garden of Eden, the tree of life, the tree of God's kingdom, which was the tree of good, for only God is purely good, and therefore the source of genuine and pure good, and whose fruit is that pure good which originates solely from God, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is the spirit of disobedience, which is the spirit of Satan, and whose fruit is evil. Jesus made this statement concerning the tree and its fruit being either good or evil, but not both simultaneously, in response to what the Pharisees were thinking and saying among themselves, that the source of Jesus' power over devils was Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons, identifying the source of their thoughts and assessment with which they were maligning him, as well as they themselves, was Satan rather than God. because. What they were thinking and speaking about him was not good, but evil. And the substance of those thoughts and words they spoke was an evil heart, not a heart of good that is of and emanates from God, which is why he followed that statement by castigating them, calling them a brood of vipers. Thus the import of what Jesus was saying in this incident was that any spiritual concept, attitude, or mindset either originates from God and therefore is of His kingdom, or it originates from Satan and is of 
his kingdom, making it and its fruit either good or evil. But the source and produce cannot be a mixture of both. Rather, it must be either or. What Jesus is instructing us in this dissertation is that it is imperative to understand and keep in mind in examining and assessing all spiritual matters that their validity is a matter of their source, whether the kingdom of God or Satan's kingdom. And fruit, the particular matter will produce in the fruit-bearing stage, good or evil, is determined by and is a product of its source and nature. If it originates from God, then its nature can only be good, and it will produce good fruit. But if it is authored by Satan, its nature can only be evil or bad, and its fruit can only be evil or bad. Simple as that. However, the problem with virtually all spiritual matters that do originate with God are, therefore, indeed of his kingdom and intrinsically good and produce good fruit, as is manifestly obvious, lies not in their source, nature, and fruit, but rather in their implementation on earth as it is in heaven, by redeemed but not yet perfect humans. New understanding of kingdom truths God is revealing and paradigms of which he is decreeing and requiring institution in the church Jesus is building always are affected and impaired in their implementation, particularly at the outset as a result of the fact that it is imperfect humans that God works through to implement and employ them. The most profound affirmation of that, as shall be discussed further toward the culmination of this article, is found in the fact that the Lord has been very patiently, gradually, and methodically perfecting the saints and building up the body of Christ as part of the process of building his church and preparing the bride for the return of Christ to claim her as his eternal bride now for more than two millennia. When God first births a spiritual element of the kingdom to the church on earth and calls for its institution in the church, like the birth of humans, it is always far different in its infancy in terms of appearance and functionality than it becomes through its maturing process until it reaches perfection. For this reason, as with the human birth and development process, it is a mistake to attempt to make judgments about what this entity is destined ultimately to be. My parents, for example, could not have possibly envisioned 64 years ago when I was born a little prematurely, underweight, and sickly, who and what I would turn out to be through the various stages of the process of human development and maturation. One simply cannot look at a newborn and know with any degree of certainty at all what that baby's life will be about and the achievements that baby will make. And to even attempt to make those judgments is nothing more than wild speculation at best. 
All of this is applicable to the nascent and ongoing apostolic prophetic restoration process that first commenced around the time of my birth in 1948 and then was kicked into high gear, so to speak, in the mid-1980s and 90s and continues today in 2012 as I write. As in the case of human births, there is often a lot of jubilation and celebration along with high-spirited and hopeful prognostication about a newborn that has come into the world, and more particularly into the lives of two parents and their extended family. Nevertheless, not everyone on the planet celebrates or even knows about the new life that has come into the world, nor, unfortunately, do they care. In fact, some people have internal biases and acrimony that make them despise the knowledge of the new birth as well as the newborn, unfortunately. All of that is also true concerning the matter of the apostolic prophetic restoration, as well as the larger matter of which it is actually a subset, the fivefold ministry model. For more concerning that larger issue of fivefold ministry, I urge you to read the series of articles I've published and have placed the links to here in the text of this article. For centuries, cessation theology has posited and promulgated the thoroughly unscriptural notion that the apostolic and prophetic offices or functions ceased to exist and a function with the completion of the New Testament writings and the death of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Unfortunately, many so-called fundamentalist ministers, churches, and denominations today continue to espouse those wholly indefensible cessation theories, thereby, quote-unquote, invalidating the Word of God by their traditions. I won't consume the space here in this article required to present a comprehensive debunking of cessation theology hypotheses, but I am providing here in this text of this article links to some articles we've published either here on this site or on some of our other sites we operate. Enjoying this podcast? Please take a minute to pray if the Lord would have you help us with the substantial financial burden of this program. We receive no grants or funding from any organization or government agency and have no other means of support than the gracious and generous giving of our listeners. SLM Inc. bears the entire burden. In about 30 seconds, you can donate at paypal.me forward slash SLM Inc. Again, that's paypal.me forward slash SLMINC to give any amount. Thank you for your gifts, generosity, and graciousness. For our purposes here, I will offer two counterpoints that swiftly and completely debunk cessation theories. The first is the common sense assertion that if there is a viable, that is, living, church today, comprised, as Peter said, of living stones, and no true believer would deny there is because the Word of God expressly informs us of that fact, then there must of necessity be a viable, that is, presently living, not ceased or deceased, foundation to that church, as Ephesians 2.20 
indicates. This fact of living, functioning apostles and prophets today is indisputably corroborated by 1 Corinthians 12.28 in which the Spirit of God testifies that God has, that is, present continuous tense, not did, but the Greek tense there is has in a present continuing sense, that he has set, that is, immutably fixed in the church first apostles, second prophets. Inherent in this passage is the truth that as long as the church exists, and it will continue to exist until Christ returns in the clouds, in the air, and the body of Christ is taken up into the clouds to be united with him, God is continuously setting into the church apostles and prophets as its primary leaders. If the church continues to exist, and the very existence of every local church that claims the attribution Christian entirely depends on the fact that it does, then apostles and prophets are still functioning today because they, coupled with Christ Jesus himself, who is the cornerstone, are the foundation of the church. Again, according to that Ephesians 2.20 scripture. To reason that the apostolic and prophetic office or function no longer exist and function is to say that the church is foundationless and beyond that, even without the cornerstone himself. And if any of that be true, the church itself no longer exists and the one that is operating on the earth now is a counterfeit and a fraud. Surely no one in their right mind would assert that that is the case. So with that brief cross-examination, I rest my case. And now I would like to move on to an overview of the apostolic, which also means that you must include the prophetic, because the apostolic and the prophetic are inextricably linked in Scripture. Isaiah the prophet, in the book of Isaiah, chapter 42, verse 22, says this, But this is a people plundered and despoiled. All of them are trapped in caves, or are hidden away in prisons. They have become a prey with none to deliver them, and a spoil with none to say, give them back. And the King James renders that last phrase, none says restore. None says restore. On October 31st, 1517, in Wittenberg, Germany, an obscure Augustinian priest by the name of Martin Luther began to say, Restore, as he nailed his 95 theses to the door of Castle Church, sparking what became known as the Protestant Reformation. In Acts 3.21, the Apostle Peter prophesied concerning that period of restoration, saying that, Heaven must, and the literal Greek word says here, retain the Christ until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth 
of his holy prophets from ancient times, end quote, has been completed and fulfilled. The Protestant Reformation was the beginning of that restorational period that continues yet today, almost 500 years later. Less than 300 years following the birth of the church and the inception of the church age, the church had devolved into a period of spiritual darkness known as the Dark Ages that spanned 1,200 long years. And it fulfilled the Apostle Paul's prophecy concerning a corporate great apostasy. And I read from 1 Timothy 4.1, But the Spirit explicitly says that in the latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. This was the great apostasy for the corporate church concerning which the Apostle Paul prophesied. During this age of spiritual darkness, the truth was subverted by humanistic ideologies and vain philosophies of men, the doctrines of demons of which Paul forewarned. Many of the foundational doctrines of the church were distorted, perverted, diluted, invalidated, or totally abandoned. Moreover, the fivefold ministry offices, as well as the apostolic prophetic governmental foundation of the church, upon which it was originally established, were abrogated and replaced with an ecclesiastical hierarchy as elite clergymen began to be driven more and more by what Augustine called libido dominandi, lust for rule or dominion. Indeed, the greatest single factor contributing to the spiritual debacle of the Dark Ages was the drift following the death of the original apostles of the Lamb, from the apostolic prophetic moorings upon which the church was founded. This is Dr. Stephen Lambert, founder and overseer of Ephesians 4 Network of Churches and Ministers. We are a fellowship of fivefold ministers co-laboring together to accomplish the end times purposes and plans of God. If you are a fivefold minister or aspire to be one, I invite you to visit our website to learn who we are and how we can serve you at Ephesians4.net. That's Ephesians4.net. Not long after the start of his fleshly ministry, Jesus, who it's vital to remember, is the literal, not merely the metaphorical, head of the church. After spending all night in prayer, the following morning came down from the mountain and stood, quote-unquote, on a level place with his disciples. Luke recounts, chose twelve of his disciples and named them apostles. As a result, in one moment, these twelve men went from being merely disciples to being apostles, when Jesus named them apostles. No seminary, no school of ministry, 
school of prophets or school of apostles. Jesus simply named them apostles. The Gospel of Mark says he appointed them that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. Jesus named and appointed these twelve men apostles and sent them out, charging them with his very own authority to heal the sick and cast out demons. He gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. And this, mind you, was before the day of Pentecost, before the imbuement of power from on high through the baptism in the Holy Spirit, and before Easter evening in the upper room, when all gathered there became the first humans who were regenerated as Jesus breathed upon them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Real Truth. I'm Stephen Lambert. Please subscribe to the podcast, share with your friends, and visit realtruthradio.com to join our mailing list. Be sure to tune in to the next edition of The Real Truth. Until then, this is Stephen Lambert reminding you that with God, all things are possible and all things work together for good to them who love God and are called according to His purpose.